welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. This is a trial of the week. We review a landmark article published in critical care or emergency medicine history. And the month of October is ending. I got a brutal reality check when I looked outside my window this morning, and the uh, it was in the 30s. So, uh, hate that for us in the Midwest. But the month ends on a high note from a trial of the week perspective because I'm joined by Linda Audishu, UCSD professor and pharmacist to highlight not one, but two CRT-themed articles for this trial of the week. So we review the Raynal and Ideal ICU study while reviewing the history of CRT, research priorities, guideline recommendations, other pertinent studies, and much, much more. So these were published about nine years apart, but both in the month of October, trying something new. Definitely let me know what you think. We're ending the month of October on a high note with an awesome October trial of the week starting right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And today's special guest is Linda Audishu. Now, Linda is a professor and division head of clinical pharmacy at the University of California, San Diego, Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Uh, reach out to her uh, on Twitter at L Audishu. Uh, Linda, welcome. Appreciate you joining us today. How are things on the West Coast? West Coast is great. And thank you so much for inviting me. This is actually my first podcast. So it's a super cool experience. Oh, you, well, you're already coming off as a natural. This is going to be fantastic. And what better way um, to to introduce you than to not only have w- not one trial of the week, but we're going to try something new. And we're actually going to try to talk about two trials of the week, all CRRT focused. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. I think we got a lot to get into. So as we set the scene here, normally we're used to kind of going into the background of the individual studies. And we'll talk a little bit about those backgrounds. But what I want to start with here is broadly about renal replacement therapy. And it can be intermittent, right? Intermittent hemodialysis or continuous as in continuous renal replacement therapy. So for those maybe less familiar, what are some of the biggest differences in CRT compared to that uh, IHD? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. And I wanted to add one other to um, to your list, which is continuous peritoneal diet 
dialysis in high volume for AKI, um, which is actually done in low-resourced countries around the world. So if we're to compare and contrast CRRT to intermittent therapies, the first major difference is that CRRT is meant to be continuous delivery of renal replacement therapy. And so, you know, ideally that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Intermittent therapies may happen, you know, for a set period of time, be it three to four hours a day. It can occur every other day, three times a week, but they're intermittent. It's not continuous and it's not typically every single day. Um, The next big difference between the modalities is the blood flow rate. And that's really um, the major innovation with CRRT that's allowed us to um, utilize renal replacement therapy in a broader group of patients. So the blood flow rates in CRRT are much slower than intermittent therapies. In CRRT, our blood flow rate is anywhere from 100 to 150 mils per minute, whereas in intermittent therapies, we're looking at you know 200 to 400 uh, mils per minute in the blood flow rate. So these slower blood flow rates allow patients who may be uh, hemodynamically unstable to tolerate the renal replacement therapy more so than intermittent. The next big difference is dialysate flows. So in CRT, um, depending on the institution, because everybody's got their different you know, prescriptions for CRRT. But at UCSD, for example, we employ a dialysate flow rate of about a liter per hour. And so if you convert that to mils per minute, that's about, you know, 17 mils per minute. And uh, the blood flow rates at 100 to 150, right? So you can see kind of the ratio the blood flow rate to the dialysate flow rate. Dialysate's much slower. And so we um, in terms of that diffusion and convective therapy versus intermittent hemodialysis, you know, the dialysate flow rate might be 500, 700 mils per minute. And so when you compare and contrast the ratios, the uh, dialysate flow rates flowing much more rapidly in IHD doesn't get saturated. And so For this reason, you know, IHD is really great for rapid correction of electrolytes like hyperkalemia or toxin removal in overdose situations. That's those are kind of the big differences, if you will. But there's there's many, many more um, that we can talk about if interested. Well, and I love that you highlighted to the role of intermittent hemodialysis in that, you know, uh, for the immediate toxin removal or that those life-threatening electrolyte abnormalities, that is the preferred way because you need to try to get those things out quickly. You know, instead of having it over a day, it's in that, you know, three to four hour time frame. So I thought that was a really good breakdown and kind of um, highlights the fact that our hemodynamically unstable patients, CRT is extremely advantageous for, or at least, um, in terms of renal replacement therapy, it feels like it reduced our risk of adverse events, right? Because as our blood flow rates higher, you're losing blood, your risk of dropping pressure goes down lower. So that makes complete sense. Now, how long, how long has CRT like even been an intervention for our critically ill patients? For a very, very long time. So the, uh, um, the physician who I think invented CRRT was Peter Kramer in, in Germany, and he performed the first 
uh, CAVH, which is continuous arteriovenous hemofiltration in 1977. So how many years is that? I have to do the math, right? So uh, 23 and 23, so 46 it's about, years. Yeah, um, yeah. Wow, that was awesome yeah. mental math, by the way, for the listeners who just heard that doing that. I'm, I'm counting on fingers. That's what I had my fingers out. One, two. <laughs> I know we always had that, you know, when we were growing up, we were taught to find the, um, you know, the, the anchor would be 2000 and then do the math above and beyond, but, um, above and below. So, yeah. So he first, you know, did this therapy and it then became this reliable alternative, um, to intermittent hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis in critically ill patients. Um, and then over time, that therapy was iterated, right? So the AV techniques were associated with a lot of um, complications, if you will, related to arterial cannulation or a low blood flow rate in the extracorporeal circuit. So then continuous venovenous hemofiltration or hemodialysis or hemodiafiltration took over uh, due to the availability of double lumen venous catheters and then blood pumps in, in the dialysis machines. So 40, 46 years. So certainly not a new a new therapy because I think it's one of those you see the big machine you see them and it feels like it's a newer thing you have those big dialysate bags right if you're um, you know doing that modality so um, I liked pointing out that uh, it's been around for a long time and you'll see you know there have been improvements and upgrades in our therapies and um, you know we had the amazing Bruce Mueller talking about dosing and how our our you know, old studies versus new studies, keeping that in mind. So, but I like to highlight the fact that this is certainly an older modality. Now, as we move into these two, our two trial of the week studies, the uh, renal and ideal ICU trial, what are some of the biggest questions we have regarding CRRT? Where has the research kind of been focused uh, in this field? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when I first started uh, in this field, in this area, it was back in the early 2000, late 90s. And at that time, you know, the questions of interest for me were, what are the right replacement fluids, dialysate composition? Um, you know, is it lactate versus bicarbonate? What anticoagulations therapy is optimal and how do we optimize anticoagulation? Is it heparin versus citrate? And, you know, those were generally answered not in large RCTs or anything of that nature, but we saw, you know, benefits using bicarbonate as a buffer that led to the innovation of new, um, you know, bicarbonate-based dialysate uh, solutions. And then citrate anticoagulation basically took over for the most part. There are centers that still do heparin but citrate is is recommended. And then the questions that emerged in, you know, probably 2009 and later were, what is the right dose? Um, I think for a decade, we questioned the right dose of dialysis to deliver. Um, lots of interest in high dose uh, hemofiltration for the removal of cytokines and sepsis and um, comparing and contrasting that to, you know, other modes of dialysis like uh, CV. CVVHD, and then later on CVVHDF. And then the other um, 
big question was timing. When do we start these therapies? You know, because the standard was to wait um, until the patient had specific indications, you know, for the treatment and not to base it on a level of kidney disease severity, like uh, you know, a specific GFR cutoff or a specific creatinine cutoff. It was really the, the total picture um, for the need for CRRT. So I would say those are the big those were the big questions, you know, of dose delivered and then um, timing. It makes sense that these two trials are going to hit exactly on that. So let's start right. with with our renal trial. And you even mentioned this where you talked about the dose of CRT. And this is one of those things where you could look at three review articles and it could be referred to as different things. You might see it as the effluent rate. It might be the therapy fluid rate, CRT dose. But it, just generically speaking, what is this concept referring to? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I always think of it as the effluent flow rate. So I, hopefully that's that's correct. But, you know, it's basically when we talk about dose, we're talking about how much dialysis therapy we're delivering to the patient. And that's really a sum of the convective clearance and the diffusive clearance that's being delivered in the modality, right? And there are three major modalities of CVVH, CVVHD, CVVHDF. And so, you know, CVVH is is predominantly convective uh, clearance. CVVHD is diffusive clearance predominantly, a little bit of convective. And then HDF is a combo of the two. So the effluent flow rate is, is really the the effluent is the sum of that ultrafiltration that we're pulling off the patient and the spent dialysate. And so that total kind of fluid is what we consider to be the clearance that's delivered by the modality. And that's the dose that we're aiming for, you know, um, when we talk about the dose of RRT. And um, so far, I've been talking about continuous therapies, but, you know, let's switch over to intermittent. Uh, the dose for intermittent therapies is generally measured by the clearance of urea, and we calculate that as a KT over V. And so the, the KT over V estimated by, you know, how much urea is reduced during that specific di dialytic therapy therapy session. And then there's a target for each session and a weekly target uh, for the dose delivered for dialysis. So that's generally how we, how we calculate the dialysis dose for each of the continuous versus intermittent therapies. And I like that you use the word clearance in CRT. We'll put a, we'll put a pin in that cause we'll get to it, but that definitely comes back from a pharmacist perspective in just a little bit. Um, so we have a, a 2009 and a 2018 study. So I think the phrase is age before beauty. So let's start with our older 2009 New England Journal of Medicine research, the renal study. But prior to this study, right, they were recruiting patients between 05 and 08. What was our recommended effluent rate in CRT? Was there any, did we have a true consensus like in the nephrology community? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think there was a lot of variation in modality used. And so, um, you know, there may have been differences in, in the prescribed effluent rates or what have you. But at that time, if I remember correctly, it was about 
20, you know, to 25 mils per kilo per hour. And there were studies, a lot of European studies, if I remember correctly, that were using this high volume hemofiltration. It could have been maybe 40 to 80, you know, I can't remember exactly at that time. And that was showing those higher flow rates were showing some benefit in sepsis due to cytokine removal. So, you know, there was a lot of question, you know, do we need to be pushing these flow rates? Should it be convective clearance? Should it be, you know, diffusive clearance or a combo too? And so I think Renal set out to, you know, test the hypothesis of the standard effluent flow rate of 20 to 25 versus a higher one, which I believe in Renal was 40 uh, mils per, per kilo per, per hour. That's exactly, that's exactly what it was. And that's the, that's the perfect lead in. Let's kind of introduce, introduce our, our study here. And uh, for the listeners who haven't um, listened to a trial of the week, I'll go over some of the, the methodology and then Linda will um, fill in any gaps that I may have missed and then ultimately let us know what this study found. So um, the intensity of continuous renal replacement therapy in critically ill patients are published this month in New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. So prospective randomized multi-center parallel group trial uh, conducted between December of 05 and November of 2008 in 35 Australian and New Zealand uh, ICUs. So adult patients were eligible to be included if, so the clinician believed they needed CRT as treatment for their AKI and anticipate it will continue for at least 72 hours. And they had to meet at least one clinical criteria for CRT initiation. So when you pull up the supplementary appendix, it lets you know that's less than 100 mLs in six hours of urine output in six hours, uh, hyperkalemia greater than 6.5, uh, acidosis with a pH of less than 7.2, a urea greater than 25, or a creatinine greater than 300 micromoles per liter. You may be wondering, wow, that sounds really high, Nick. That's correct, because we're used to that being um, um, talked about in milligrams per deciliter. So uh, tip, multiply it by 0.0113, and that means their creatinine was greater than 3.4, greater than or equal to just about, um, or clinically significant edema. So um, key exclusion criteria, they tried to make this as... Um, inclusive as possible. It was patients have already received renal replacement therapy, their end-stage uh, renal disease on renal replacement therapy prior to admission, and body weight extreme. So less than 60 kilos or greater than 100 kilos, which is wild for a, a, an American to hear that the body weight extreme was greater than 100 kilos, as that's probably our median dose if we were going through this now. Um, but patients receive CVV HDF, so continuous venovenous hemodiafiltration as their modality. Um, and like Linda mentioned, enrolled patients were randomized to that higher intensity gr uh, group, 40 mils per kilo per hour of that effluent rate, or the lower intensity group, which is about 25 mils per kilo per hour, with a primary outcome of 90-day all-cause mortality the classic secondary outcomes you'd think of, right? 28-day ICU, in-hospital mortality, as well as looking at some of your renal outcomes, like how long were you on renal replacement therapy? Were you on dialysis as an outpatient at day 90, et cetera? Um, so 1,465 patients were enrolled uh, that ended up getting primary outcome data. And they had similar baseline characteristics. About 75% were receiving mechanical ventilation with just over 80% on vasoactive infusions, which makes sense when you think about CRT being an advantageous modality for those who are hypotensive or at risk of hypotension. So 
Linda, what did the investigators ultimately find and definitely fill in anything um, of importance that I may have missed in kind of the intro of the study? Yeah, so the biggest finding was that there was no difference in mortality um, between the kind of standard dose arm versus the higher dose arm. And they also found that there were more patients on renal replacement therapy at day 90 in the higher intensity group. Higher intensity CRRT comes with adverse effects, right? So um, one of the major adverse effects is hypophosphatemia, and that's always a concern in ventilated patients because we worry that that might affect their ability to be extubated and to come off the ventilator. Um, so those were probably the, the biggest findings. Uh, and you just, you know, the the, tri- the trial population, right? So 75% were on, mecha- or 74, 75% were on mechanical ventilation, and these were patients with severe sepsis. So again, you know, no difference in mortality, right, to do this higher dose um, renal replacement therapy. I also wanted to mention there was this sub-study of Renal that looked at antibiotic therapy by I think Jason Roberts, and that sub-study showed that there was wide variability in antibiotic exposure um, in terms of antibiotic concentrations for in that patient population. And granted, it's a smaller PK sub-study of Renal, um, but what they also showed was that the intensity of CRRT, the you know twenty-five versus forty did not affect the antibiotic clearance for, you know, a handful of antibiotics. And the only one, I think it was Piptazo, Cipro, maybe Meropenem, um, but the only one where it did impact the clearance was vancomycin. So that was another question, right, is, you know, does higher intensity therapy remove more antibiotics? And if you're dealing with a study that the majority of patients have sepsis, that is one of the most important interventions we can make to impact mortality. Um, And that still remains a question, you know, in terms of the right antibiotic dose at the right time uh, for patients who are on renal replacement therapy. Now, despite what these investigators found, I think sometimes in practice, you'll still see patients, specific patients, get their effluent rate bumped up to maybe 30, 35, 40 in severe cases. So, what are some maybe patient specific examples or, or, um, symptoms, disease states, et cetera, to indicate that that we should push up that effluent rate, that we should increase it from kind of our, our standard? Yeah, so one a really important concept, I think, it's to, to talk about with, with the audience, right, is what's prescribed versus what's delivered. And, um, you know, we can prescribe a specific effluent flow rate, but remembering that this is a pretty sick population of patients who's going to receive CRRT and they experience a lot of downtime from the renal replacement therapy. So what does downtime mean? It means interruptions to therapy. So, for example, if a patient uh, clogs their filter, you know, then that filter needs to be changed out with a new filter, that's time off off of renal replacement therapy. If a patient needs to go off for a procedure, we generally don't continue the renal replacement therapy during the procedure. Um, We used to, at at 
some point in time do intraoperative renal replacement therapy, but that's real tough to do from a resource standpoint, training, um, and, you know, knowledge, uh, really. And then, so if you kind of think about all the potential downtimes that a patient can have, then what the prescribed dose of renal replacement therapy or prescribed effluent um, doesn't always match with what was delivered uh, during that time period. And so I think, you know, it is important to be thinking about that and thinking about interruptions. It's super hard to predict. Nobody can predict them, but that might be reason, you know, to target a slightly higher effluent flow rate of 30 or, or what have you, or if the physicians are seeing that there are interruptions, you know, they may want to do a higher flow rate during that time period that they're on renal replacement. In terms of, you know, higher intensity CRRT and the guidelines, right? So we have KDGO guidelines for acute kidney injury, and the current KDGO guidelines recommend um, delivering a effluent volume of 20 to 25. So that's our current guidelines. Um, and they do note that there's insufficient data for higher intensity CRRT. Um, they they uh, reference a small single center study in patients with septic shock that showed that if they were uh, randomized to a higher volume of, I believe, CVVH at 65 mils per kilo per hour compared to 35, that the um, use of vasopressors was reduced. Um, so the mean norepinephrine dose was decreased after 24 hours of high volume versus low volume. But again, there was no mortality benefit in those studies, right? So um, where there may be a signal that like higher intensity might help remove cytokines, we still don't have that hard evidence on mortality. So do they have like 15 liter bags? I'm thinking of 65 mils per kilo per hour in our classic five liter bags. I can't think of anything that would make a nurse dislike you more than making them change dialysate bags every 30 minutes, or I guess all the bags in like every you know hour or two. So um, I think that's an important point you said about what is uh, prescribed versus done. And that's when, when learners are with me and anybody in the ICU, I'm sure they do the same thing where you have to emphasize, hey, what was the downtime? Is it charted in your EHR? Maybe, maybe it's charted by like on a bedside thing. Maybe you need to go talk to the nurse or whatever, but, um, you're able to find, Oh, it was off for 12 hours. Cause they went to MRI and then they went to the OR and then they came back and they wanted to see what their re- urine output was afterwards and things. And so, you know, you might be making dose adjustments when in reality they didn't get that therapy for a certain period of time. So I think that's a really good point. Why as pharmacists do we care about this rate? Why are we why are we leading this talk with it? Why is this important for us? Well, you know, it's it's this is like the perfect segue. <laughs> we didn't even rehearse this. So, you know, which is it's great. So one of the major like quality improvement initiatives we did at UCSD was um And it's kudos. I want to do a shout out to Nina Haste, who's our infectious disease uh, pharmacist specialist at UC San Diego. She and I worked on um, really educating our pharmacists to utilize the dialysis flow sheets, you know. And so we had historically always looked at the dialysis order and used the prescribed effluent flow rate. Right. So we would say, oh, it's 2.5 liters per hour. 
and then convert that to what is it, thirty-three mils per minute or something of that nature. Yep, you divide it by sixty. And yep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So twenty-five hundred mils divided by sixty, and you know that was fine for the most part until we started to see wow, there's downtime and that downtime is impacting my calculations of vancomycin clearance, Um, you know, because we would put in the 33 mils per minute for their kidney function estimate. And at at UCSD, we do a full PK analysis for every vanco level. We don't use a nomogram per se. And so sometimes we would see that it was like pretty off, right? Like the vanco clearance wasn't what we were expecting for that renal replacement therapy effluent. And then we'd look at the chart and look at that dialysis flow sheet and see that they were off for 12 hours, you know, right? So just to your point, Nick, um, we've actually converted to now calculating a 24-hour average effluent flow rate, and we get that from the dialysate flow sheet that's in the EHR, and we use that for our PK calculation. So that was a big kind of change that we did from a quality initiative, and um you know, dose delivered is more accurate than, than dose prescribed. What an awesome initiative. What a cool, like quality improvement, pragmatic idea to, to take what we know and improve the care that's happening, you know, in your institution, in your health system, what have you. So what a, what an awesome idea. Yeah. I love that you shouted out our ID colleagues who are obviously pretty involved. Most of these patients are going to be on antibiotics, right? So they're going to be involved in, in the care of these critically ill patients as well. So Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We talked about dose and it makes sense. We would study that first in critical care. More is typically, we think more is better. It doesn't always work out, but we at least research it. So we found out maybe not. So our next question is, when do we start renal replacement therapy? And generally speaking, are there patient-specific triggers or things that, um, in an umbrella term, makes you think of going towards that renal replacement therapy route? Yeah, yeah, that that's been you know quite a controversial question because when we think of timing, we need to think of two components of timing. Right, one component is severity of AKI. Do I start earlier in the severity of AKI, like AKI stage two versus AKI stage three? And would be how soon after they've met that criteria, right, for severity, do I start? Do I start within 12 hours? Do I start within six hours? (laughs) Or do I wait and see if that AI actually reverses on its own? Because I think Bruce Mueller, one of my colleagues and, and his colleagues, at Michigan looked at transient AKI and they, you know, did this large study, uh, 17,000 patients and said, you know, how often does AKI persist 
right? And they found that there was a large component of transient AKI and many AKI episodes resolved by the 48-hour time period. So I think, again, that timing is important because if people are, if if patients are going to resolve on their own, why do we intervene, right? Why do we um, put them at risk of harm, right? Because all of the things that we do are, are a a balance of benefit and risk. Um, So I would say that those are kind of the components of like timing. And then you were asking me like, which populations, you know, do we start renal replacement therapy? So back in the old day, I don't know if you were taught the mnemonic, the AEIOU. Yeah, that's a classic, 100%. It's a classic, (laughs) you know, and and while it's, you know, been refined (laughs) over, (laughs) over time, it's it's basically, you know, we're thinking about life-threatening electrolyte disorders like hyperkalemia, um, acidemia, and then we're thinking about volume overload, right? So patients with pulmonary edema, uh, we might be starting renal replacement therapy, and then, you know, uremia. So do they have pericarditis, do they have pericarditis or other kind of uremic complications? And then we can also... Uh, utilize CRRT specifically for that fine-tuned kind of like solute control, right? We can control uh, the replacement fluids that we deliver, the composition of the dialysate that we use to really help fine-tune the the um, delivery of buffers, of electrolytes, and then it helps us to fine-tune volume, right? So volume can get dialed in uh, with renal replacement therapy. So the other major kind of advantage is that when you've got fluid-restricted patients, right? So you've got patients who go into AKI and they're fluid-restricted. I mean, how much volume are we delivering with all the antibiotics and the nutrition? And so CRRT, again, gives us that flexibility to kind of hone in and, and control volume. So those are kind of the big indications, Nick, for, you know, starting CRRT uh, in the AKI population. And the you mentioned the the 2012 KDGO AKI guidelines. Um, you know the the ideal ICU study we're going to talk about is published in 2018. So they and I love I think guidelines are doing this more. Uh, the KDGO may have been one of the first ones where they had research recommendations or research priorities at the end of kind of all of those sections. And one of the things they said was a research recommendation to determine whether early versus late initiation of renal replacement therapy is preferred. And so that leads us right to the the guidelines asked and the ideal ICU investigators answered. Um, And so they created the New England Journal of Medicine study, uh, timing of renal replacement therapy in patients with acute kidney injury and sepsis, the ideal ICU study. Um, New England Journal of Medicine published in 2018 this month. So this was a French randomized controlled open label multi-center trial. Uh, It took place in 24 ICUs. They included both teaching and non-teaching or non-academic hospitals. Um, And adult patients were eligible to be included if they were in septic shock within 48 hours of presentation and develop AKI with at least one characteristic in the failure stage of that rifle classification. So remember the rifle classification uses serum creatinine and urine output. So serum creatinine greater than 200% increase, greater than 70% 
75% of the GFR decrease or your serum creatinine was greater than or equal to four. So just a flat number. Uh, from a urine output perspective, less than 0.3 mils per kilo per hour for 24 hours or a neuric mean less than 50 mLs for 12 hours. Uh, they tried to make this as inclusive as possible. So only real key exclusion criteria were uh, ESRD prior to admission and the need for emergent renal replacement therapy uh, prior to randomization. So meaning they had probably a electrolyte abnormality or things where they couldn't wait. They needed it right now. Um, now the investigators could use whatever uh, renal replacement therapy modality that they used in their uh, usual practice. So they didn't want to, you know, muck with making people use, you know, one setting versus another. And patients were randomized to either the early strategy group, meaning that renal replacement therapy was initiated within 12 hours after documentation of that failure stage AKI, or the delayed stage, uh, the delayed strategy group, meaning that they were closely monitored after randomization to detect the development of any one of the following conditions um, included in the criteria for that emergent renal replacement therapy. So they were essentially um, waiting to get to the point where they would have been excluded from the study. So does their K get greater than 6.5? Is their pH less than 7.15? Or are they uh, very fluid overloaded, meaning refractory to diuretics getting pulmonary edema? And the primary outcome here was uh, 90-day all-cause mortality, so the similar uh, outcome to that Raynal study, um, and the similar secondary outcomes that we're looking for, right? Mortality at 28 days, 180 days uh, in the hospital, in the ICU. Then looking at duration of renal replacement therapy, duration of vasopressors, and that duration of mechanical ventilation. Now, 488 patients were randomized with no significant difference in baseline characteristics. Now, everyone was receiving vasopressors here and just under 90% mechanically ventilated, so definitely a sick population. So, Linda, what did ultimately the ideal ICU investigators find? So, you know, starting uh, dialysis earlier, so kind of this early initiation or accelerated initiation, um, whatever term you want to call it, um, is not associated with a mortality benefit, right? And then I also believe that what we're seeing is a signal that patients who start early tend to stay on dialysis longer, right? And it might just be because they started probably two days earlier, right? So if I think if we looked at the mean um, days uh, for duration of RRT, it was about four days versus two days in the early versus standard of care. And so that kind of represents that time period, right, for the initiation of dialysis. Um, and the the um, in terms of, you know, the other signal that we see, so longer kind of dialysis, and what we see in patients who don't start early, I think is important, right? Only 62% of patients who don't start early actually receive renal replacement therapy. 29% spontaneously recovered. So, you know, we could be doing harm, right? In a third of the, you know, that population, if we had started them early, um, of the patients who were standard, you know, start, 8% of them died um, and didn't need re renal replacement therapy at 48 hours. Um, and, you know, and they met their they met their goals of early versus delayed because I think the average time from uh, AKI to start of renal replacement therapy was like, what, seven to eight hours in the early start and then, you know, 50 plus hours in, in kind of this, the delayed start. So I think, you know, 
the, the um, ideal ICU trial answered the question that, you know, early start is not associated with a mortality benefit and that, you know, we really need to be individualizing, you know, um, dialysis start. And there is this question of all of the patients who have emergent needs for dialysis are excluded from these studies, right? So multiple timing studies. So how does that impact the mortality benefit? You know, because we, we, started dialysis in those patients and you know it would be interesting to know like does the mortality benefit change right and so i think it just really leads us down to this um path of the you have to look at the individual patient right and weigh the risk versus benefit of initiating dialysis that's a really good point because i think the hypothesis would be yes that you you might see a benefit in if you included those patients, because the delayed, right, all those triggers to initiate, those were essentially more or less the exclusion criteria. So they were basically like, how, how long can we wait until you wouldn't even be included in this study? And then we would start it. Um, that's a really, that's a really good point. Now, my, my question with this is talking about the patient populations of this. And do you think there would be a clinically significant difference if we included patients with diagnoses other than septic shock and other critically ill patient populations? Like CT surgery, for example, came, came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really great question. And um, really the, you know, I would say one of the biggest anticipated benefits would have been in shock, in septic shock, you know, and we didn't see that in the study. But there are other studies, right, um, which we haven't talked about yet. The Elaine study was done in 2016 before the ideal ICU trial, and that looked at a predominantly surgical cohort. Um, and they answered the question of early versus late. Um, they looked at, they started patients with KDGO stage three, AKI. They found that the um, hazard ratio of death at day 90 was uh, lower with early initiation uh, versus, you know, delayed initiation. Um, but, you know, that again, that was a surgical cohort. And then the Akiki trial, which came, I believe, in the same year, looked at a medical cohort and found that they had no difference in mortality with with early versus late. So it's possible, Nick, that different, you know, populations in surgery or what have you might benefit from earlier initiation. Um, and again, volume control is important in that population. And, and it's the fluids, you know, all the fluids that the aggressive fluids that they get, that there may be some benefit to that. Not certain. Well, and this is, it kind of makes the argument, right? First do no harm. And when you start these therapies exactly. that have a high risk of, of morbidity with it, right? If, if it's not acutely life-threatening, the idea of delaying until you have to makes sense to us now. And now we have multiple studies to kind of back that up. Um, so I thought that was a really good um, review of a couple of those studies published in between the two that we reviewed today. Have there been any significant ones published since 2018, since this um, ideal ICU study that helps clarify anything further? Yes. Um, so there was the START AKI trial, which was published um, in 2020, I believe, in the New England Journal of Medicine, that was an RCT of uh, ICU patients with at least stage 
two or higher AKI that were randomized, similar to ideal ICU within 12 hours um, for persistent AKI. And they had to have like other indications like hyperkalemia, acidosis, volume overload, et cetera. Um, and in terms of like the early versus the delayed arm, approximately 97% of patients got dialysis in the early arm. But for the delayed arm, only 62% got dialysis. So again, similar to the ideal ICU where, um, you know, a proportion of patients didn't need renal replacement therapy if you wait that 48 to 72 hour time frame. Um, in terms of the, the START AKI trial, um, one other thing to consider is that they not only used renal, continuous renal replacement therapy, but they also used IHD and SLED. Uh, the majority was CRRT, so it was like 68% or so, but then there was, you know, about a quarter of the population received, um, you know, uh, IHD and maybe a, a smaller percentage, like 5% on SLED. Regardless, the primary outcome was no difference in mortality at day 90, and they also did the uh, MAKE outcome, so the major adverse kidney event outcomes. And so um, GFR at day 90 was no different. They also looked at ICU mortality, hospital mortality, no difference. They looked at mechanical ventilation-free days um, and vasoactive therapy-free days, no difference, I believe. And they found uh, increased adverse events, the ones that we know of, right, with continuous renal replacement therapies, hypophosphatemia, and, and then they had hypotension, which may have been driven by the IHD therapies, but more increased adverse events with early start versus late or delayed. I feel like FOSS is the underrated electrolyte. So the fact that it got shouted out twice oh. here is a great thing, right? Got big love for phosphorus, especially in our CRT patients. Because I'll tell you what, death taxes, and if you're not checking a FOSS, it's going to be undetectably low at day three in these RRT patients. Those are all things that will uh, happen no matter what. Um, so, Linda, we talked a lot of those uh, research priorities that we kind of hit on in the beginning. Um We've kind of talked through a little bit, right, talking about our dose and some of our timing. So what does the future of CRT or just renal replacement therapy research in general look like? What are our you know, research priorities or questions at this stage? Oof. I don't even know where to start. I mean, as a pharmacist, I'm biased. I think like the biggest research question is like antibiotic dosing exposure. I don't know if you agree with me, but, you know, to me... Um, there's so many interesting areas, of course, some people might say nutrition and this and that, but I think like the antibiotic dosing is pretty critical. I, I don't think we know exactly what we're doing and we don't have enough therapeutic drug monitoring really to guide us, right? And that that is a high priority, at least from my perspective. And then really it's going to be what you already mentioned, Nick, is like what's the right modality and what's the right effluent flow rate for specific populations, you know, so as we start to use this more, you know, it's been 46 years now, are we innovating, right? So I've seen protocols for correction of hyponatremia or, you know, how to use CRT in brain injury, right? So I think there's going to be evolving indications and figuring out whether there's benefit in those different subpopulations. Um, and then if you think like, further down the road, like 
and it may not be too far away, but AI to guide individualized CRRT start and stop. So it's not just starting, it's stopping, right? As you know, and and um, when do we do it? How do we do it? And which populations? So I think AI could really, um, really help guide in that area. And then maybe some of these signals need to be investigated. Like if you initiate dialysis too soon, do you actually cause more AKI? Is that like that signal of no mortality benefit? Is that what's happening there? Or, you know, is there something else going on? Um, And then thinking about new technology, smart integration, precision medicine, precision volume control, um, thinking about, you know, like new technology. And I should probably uh, share, I have a conflict of interest. I'm I'm a consultant for MediBeacon um, that creates a real-time GFR measurement. But thinking about that, you know, in the future for when patients are ready to come off CRRT, you know, can we quantify kidney function, et cetera. So lots of potential research questions. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about the future and yeah. I'm a, I'm a big uh, proponent of dosing and making sure the dose is right as a pharmacist. Like what I always tell my learners is the team knows that the Piptazo is ordered, but no one knows it's dosed appropriately, but us. So that needs to be our lane. And so I feel strongly in that. That's one of my, that's one of the things I'm a, I'm a big stickler on is making sure you have the right dose for the indication. Think about all the things we know in our critically ill patients, how little we know about dosing in general. So I completely agree. I think dosing is uh, certainly a huge, a huge priority. And this is just the the tip of the iceberg um, looking at CRT, right? We talked about timing and dose, but we have anticoagulation, we have dosing, we have when to stop it, um, you know, management of our ESRD patients who have acute on chronic things, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's tons, tons more things to do. Um, Belinda, what an awesome highlight Greatly appreciate you coming on. The only thing we need, I need San Diego to get some more conferences. That needs to be on the Phoenix level. I don't know why it doesn't get enough love. I would love to go visit. Like we it's need to get, city. we need to get more San Diego and less Anaheim. That's what I'm, that's what I am pulling uh, for. But uh, Linda, thanks so much. Listeners reach out to her, let her know um, how awesome of a job she's done with this and, and all of her other endeavors at L Audishoe. Appreciate you joining us, Linda. Thanks. Thanks so much, Nick. It was a pleasure to be here. And hey, a shout out. ASN will be in San Diego. So if you ever want to come to a kidney conference, I'll be there. (laughs) Thanks again. Another huge, huge thanks to Linda for joining today. Uh, Reach out to her. Let her know what an awesome job she did. And of course, I always love any feedback you have for me as well at Pharmacy to Dose on any of your social medias. Uh, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com if you want to send that old school email message. And reference list with the articles we discussed uh, and more is in that podcast episode description as well as at PharmacyToDose.com, the website. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters. This is Pharmacy to Dose. The Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com.
The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.